0: I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, Thank you so, um, so much, um, Christina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and today's topic is What's New in Diagnostic Technologies? For people living with small cell lung cancer, and this is part two of living with small cell lung cancer. and today's program um, uh, is uh, funded um, this whole series has been funded by Jazz Pharmaceuticals in park, and I really want to thank them for their support of um, of this um, of this program. And we have many of you on the call today. We have over 150 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both um, uh, large cities, from um, urban cities, from rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Iraq, Israel, Nicaragua, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And We're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And so now um, I'm now going to introduce, in 2023 as well, actually, um, and now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Nasta Hanna. Uh, Dr. Hanna is Tom and Julie Wood Family Foundation, Professor of Lung Cancer, Clinical Research, Professor of Medicine, Vice Chief, Oncology and Malignant Hematology, Service Line Leader, Hematology, Oncology, Indiana University School of Medicine, and Dr. Hanna will be addressing an overview and definition of diagnostic technologies for small cell lung cancer, how diagnostic technologies work, examples of how diagnostic technologies inform the treatment of small cell lung cancer, and understanding the FDA's accelerated approval program, how it increases your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hanna.
2: Well, thank you. And thank you for the invitation to, to address these very important
3: topics today. So for patients who are suspected of having small cell lung
2: cancer, so most people who are diagnosed with small cell lung cancer will present with some respiratory symptom. And that's oftentimes a cough or perhaps shortness of breath. And that's because the small cell lung cancers tend to originate in the large central airways. And as they grow, they can cause uh, the airways to be irritated or obstructed, resulting in the cough or the shortness of breath. As small cell lung cancer advances, it tends to go to lymph nodes in the middle of the chest near the airways and near the main uh, bronchi. And then, after a period of time, they get into the bloodstream, or have the potential to do so, and to spread through the bloodstream to distant sites. And those distant sites can include the brain, the liver, the adrenal glands, and bones, amongst other places. So it's very important when you suspect somebody has small cell lung cancer that we are able to accurately diagnose the disease and then determine how advanced the disease is. In other words, what the stage is. So usually a patient will initially have a chest X-ray. That chest X-ray will show some sort of suspicion that there is a mass in the lung and that will be followed by a CT scan. And a CT scan is very good at looking at the anatomy It oftentimes will demonstrate some sort of mass in the lung and perhaps some areas that are abnormal in the lymph nodes. It's possible that the CT scan could even uh, look at the liver and the adrenal glands and bones to some extent and, and may even determine that there are some areas that are abnormal there. Because the tumors usually originate in the central airways, the primary way to diagnose small cell lung cancer is through a bronchoscopy. So the pulmonologist will, under anesthesia, put a tube down the throat into the main airway where they will usually encounter uh, the mass in uh, one of the large central airways. They could utilize an ultrasound probe as well during the bronchoscopy, so that would be a procedure called an E-BUS, which stands for endoscopic bronchial ultrasound. What this does is it allows the pulmonologist the ability to ultrasound the lymph nodes adjacent to the main airways, And during the same procedure, uh, that ultrasound can help guide a biopsy into those lymph nodes. And that oftentimes can uh, determine uh, the diagnosis and and sometimes even confirm what the stage of cancer is. Now, because small cell lung cancer is a very rapidly growing tumor, oftentimes the um, pathologic specimen will show a lot of dead cells, so it's important for the, uh, the, the pulmonologist to get frequent uh, passes into the tumor or into the lymph nodes so that there are adequate cells for the pathologist to determine that this is small cell. Occasionally, patients will present with a mass that's not in a central airway, but rather is peripherally located in the lung. And in that case, a CT-guided biopsy is oftentimes the way a diagnosis is made. Occasionally, the lymph nodes in the neck will be involved, and you can feel that on a physical exam, and instead of doing an invasive procedure like a bronchoscopy, one can sometimes just do a fine needle aspirate of a lymph node that's palpable in the neck. Occasionally, you may also get a biopsy of a distant place, such as a bone or the liver, although that's usually not necessary. Now, while a CT scan is usually one of the first tests that's obtained, it's not uh, usually enough information to determine how extensive the disease is. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you can see on a CT scan that the cancer is already spread, but oftentimes that's not the case. So, uh, two additional studies are routinely obtained when suspecting somebody has small cell lung cancer. Number one is an MRI of the brain. Even in the absence of symptoms, small cell lung cancer has a high predilection to go to the brain. And so you can find spots of cancer in the brain even in some individuals that have no symptoms. So it's very important to get an MRI of the brain. And then to stage the rest of the body, one usually gets a PET scan. And a PET scan utilizes a radioactive tracer to glucose, This will then go to areas that uh, tend to be rapidly proliferating cells, and small cell lung cancer is very rapidly proliferating, so it'll light up on a PET scan, and this will accurately give us the extent of disease in the chest, in the lymph nodes, in the bones, the liver, the adrenal gland, and other places where you might suspect that the patient may have cancer. So a bronchoscopy and an endoscopic bronchial ultrasound, fine needle aspirates of other sites are usually the way a diagnosis is made. An MRI of the brain and a PET-CT is usually a sufficient staging for the overwhelming majority of patients. And it is critical to accurately stage the patient. While most patients, if not all, are going to receive chemotherapy, The potential to cure the disease lies in the disease being localized or what we call limited, limited to perhaps the lung and regional lymph nodes so that radiation oncologists can incorporate this all safely into a radiation field. If there's no signs of cancer in the brain or the liver or the bones or the adrenal glands or elsewhere, then the PET-CT and the MRI of the brain can uh, inform the physicians that they can potentially cure the disease and treat the patients with both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So that's a general overview of the diagnostic technologies and how that informs our strategies for treatment. In terms of the other topic I was asked to speak about, which is the FDA's accelerated approval process, just kind of a word of how drugs uh, for cancer generally get approved. So the FDA uh, must consider a drug safe and effective. Those are the two criteria that the FDA utilizes. Now they don't say what is the definition of safe and what is the definition of effective, but it has to be considered safe and effective. So that's oftentimes relative to what are the existing standards of treatment and also the disease itself that you're treating. It used to be in the past that large, randomized clinical trials had to be conducted, oftentimes more than one clinical trial, comparing a new strategy against the current standard. And the FDA usually does require something like that for a full approval. But those studies can oftentimes take many, many years to uh, complete, and again, many years after that to analyze. So it sometimes can take five to 10 years to determine if a drug is safe and effective using those measures. So the FDA utilizes this accelerated approval process to determine if there are endpoints for efficacy, for how effective something is, uh, that can give you a high probability that this will be beneficial for patients. And that's the accelerated approval process where the FDA will set criteria, it may be something like the percentage of patients whose tumors shrink to this regimen. It's usually done only in situations in which there is a great unmet need and which uh, therapeutics are are far less than successful. And so uh, this is a process by which studies can be done with far fewer patients, oftentimes 30, 40, or 50 patients. They can demonstrate some measure of effectiveness and then the drug can get approved The FDA will then continue oversight of that drug, usually require additional larger trials to be performed, and those larger trials oftentimes will result in validating the effectiveness of the drug, and the drug will continue to be FDA approved, or in some cases, the subsequent trials demonstrate a lack of effectiveness despite the early promise and the FDA does reserve the right to pull drugs from the market if subsequent studies do not confirm the apparent effectiveness in earlier trials. This has led to drugs being approved sometimes in a fraction of the time that it used to take drugs to get approved through the FDA. So that's a summary of diagnostic technologies, how they inform treatment, and also just a brief summary of the FDA's accelerated approval process.
1: So oh, thank you so much, Dr. H- Hannah. That was really outstanding, just a stellar presentation. And also, you have set the stage for the entire program today. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Benjamin Swanson. Dr. Swanson is Associate Professor of Pathology and Mic- Microbiology, Surgical Pathologist, specializing in lung, head and neck, and GI can- diseases, University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Swanson will be addressing the role of a pathologist, open notes, asking your health care team and pathologist to help you understand open notes, combination systemic treatment for metastatic small cell lung cancer, and diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Swanson.
4: Thank you so much, and thank you for the invitation to be able to speak at this um, presentation. So I'm first going to talk about what the role of the pathologist is in the diagnosis of small cell carcinoma, and then what open notes are, um, as well as transitioning to combo combination chemotherapy and uh, the role of next-gen sequencing um, for uh, small cell carcinoma. So a pathologist is a kind of physician um, that has been trained after medical school to diagnose cancers by looking at tissue through a microscope, as well as uh, a laboratory uh, clinician who runs things such as molecular tests that can help us inform uh, the genetics of tumors and how that can guide therapy. So there's four types of scenarios um, that a pathologist may help with the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer, and that includes core needle biopsies, Uh, cytologic specimens, uh, surgical resections, as well as the realm of molecular pathology. So in both biopsies and cytologies, uh, when tissue is taken out, it's eventually fixed in formalin and placed in wax. We look at uh, tissue under a microscope that has been stained with special stains, and what a pathologist is doing is looking at what do the cells look like. Small cell usually has a typical appearance of being very small cells, that are dark, round, and blue. And they appear to a pathologist's eye to be rapidly dividing. Because a a small cell cancer is a neuroendocrine type of tumor, it stains positive with uh, stains such as chromogranin A and synaptophysin. And since it's a cancer or carcinoma, excuse me, it is also positive for keratins. Um, The other thing that a pathologist will see that helps make the diagnosis is that it is rapidly dividing. We may see mitotic figures or have, it may have a very high Ki67 index. The other really critical job of the pathologist when looking at both biopsies and uh, cytology specimens is to exclude other types of cancers that may look similar or may have a similar clinical presentation to small cell carcinoma. And that can include things such as a large cell, neuroendocrine carcinoma, or a squamous cell carcinoma of the, of the lung, or even something such as a lymphoma. And a pathologist will use specialized stains um, to, and other tests to distinguish a small cell cancer from other cancers. Um, so the difference between um, a core biopsy and cytology, so a cytology is performed by a specialized kind of pathologist called a cytopathologist who interprets fluid samples. So these are discohesive or dissociated cells um, as the previous presenter said, it's often of lymph nodes um, that cytology specimens are done, and they use similar uh, techniques as a surgical pathologist to look at what do the cells look like and what do they stain with. Um, the third scenario that um, a pathologist may interact in the helping with a small patient with small cell carcinoma is in uh, a resection. So when the Small cell cancer is of limited stage, and a patient is appropriate to be a surgical resection. Um, A portion of the lung will be taken out, and a pathologist's job is to look both at the gross or just what does the organ look like. Um, Our job is to determine how did the tumor respond to any neoadjuvant or before surgery uh, chemotherapy or radiation. Uh, We determine what the size of the tumor is, we determine if all of the cancer has been taken out, so are the margins negative? We also look to see, has, it's, has the small cell carcinoma spread to lymph nodes regionally? And then we combine this information into what's called a pathologic stage, and in the United States, we follow the American Joint uh, Committee on Cancer, or what's called AJCC, to give what are called uh, pathologic or P and then the T stage, which is usually a description of the tumor, as well as whether or not the tumor is spread to lymph nodes. So that's a PTN stage within the American Joint Committee on Cancer. And then the fourth area that a pathologist will interact with um, helping the diagnosis of small cell carcinoma is within the realm of molecular pathology. So the first area that may occur as a surgical pathologist or someone who's looking at tissue under the microscope will choose which wax block of tissue should be tested or which tissue block is most representative of the tumor. And then that gets sent to a centralized lab. A specialized pathologist called a molecular uh, pathologist will oversee the DNA testing of the tumor tissue and create a report. And from all four of these domains, actually, a pathology report um, is sent to the electronical medical record um, that clinicians can then use. And that's going to transition me then into the, the role of Open Notes. So, Open Notes is an international movement that advocates for transparent communication in healthcare. And this was initially based on a study out of a hospital in Boston that found that patients were able to read their clinic notes were better at taking their medicines, better at understanding their health conditions, and better at able to take care of themselves, among many other uh, aspects of healthcare. Um, This movement has grown such that um, the 21st Century CARES Act has now become federal law. And since April of 2021, uh, in the United States, federal law mandates That patients have the right to read uh, clinicians' notes, and that includes pathology reports in their electronic medical record. And the types of notes that must be shared by law include consultation notes, discharge, H and P pathology, and uh, laboratory results, as well as procedure and progress notes. So, if you would like to know more, if you need to, uh, if you'd like to become educated more about this. The website for this is opennotes.org, that's O-P-E-N-N-O-T-E-S sorg O-R-G. <clears throat> Next, um, transitioning to uh, the typical treatment for uh, metastatic small cell carcinoma, it's based on two uh, trials that occurred a couple of years ago, and the typical treatment for uh, small cell carcinoma includes a combination of a topocide with either carboplatin or uh, platinum, as well as an immune checkpoint inhibitor, such as atezolizumab or davorilumab. But what I'm really going to talk about, since I'm a pathologist, is more of what the next stage is, um, the other diagnostic technologies in pathology that may drive treatment. So whereas before we thought that um, small cell cancer may have been a homogeneous disease, we now know that there are at least four variants or subgroups of small cell lung cancer, um, and those are called um, SLC, or small cell lung cancer type A, or subgroup A, subgroup N, P, and Y. And about 70 percent of small cell lung cancers are group A, whereas um, about 10 to eight percent eight to 10 percent are the other three subgroups. And why that's important is that we believe there will be uh, specific uh, drug inhibitors that can target those subgroups. So, for instance, in the uh, small cell lung cancer group A, there is ongoing research looking at BCL2 inhibitors or histone deacetylase inhibitors that may be specific to that genetic group. So once again, uh, the standard therapy for metastatic small cell cancer is a platinum drug with a toposide, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, but ongoing active research is looking at additional genetic mutations that may drive uh, future drug development. And that is everything I have for today. Thank you so much. Oh,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Swanson. That was really wonderful. Just, again, a stellar and very comprehensive presentation, outstanding, and Lots of information, and also um, I just want to let everybody know that um, tomorrow you'll all be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation, and it's evaluation that we do appreciate you filling out, but it also will have any links or any information we gave during the program and even some that we want to add to it. But certainly the um, the, the opennotes.org uh, um, uh, uh, website that Dr. Swanson recommended will be in there, so you'll be able to actually... Um, check that further. And although we've been talking about open notes for quite some time, we haven't really had that website. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Swanson, for providing that to our participants today. Um, thank you. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Brian Hennick. Dr. Hennick is assistant professor of medicine at CUMC, associate director, experimental therapeutics, thoracic oncology, Herbert Irving. Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Hanek will be addressing clinical trials, how diagnostic technology research contributes to treatment choices, the benefits of combination therapy and the treatment of people living with small cell lung cancer, talking with your healthcare team about the most current treatment choices for small cell lung cancer and quality of life issues, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and follow-up appointments. Um, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haneck.
3: Thank you so much for the opportunity to to speak today, and, and uh, I, I hope that what I'll be saying will kind of follow um, on the heels of, of Dr. Hannah and Dr. Swanson's comments. Um, so uh, I, I think it, first I'll, I'll speak a little bit about what combination therapy means for uh, people who are living with small cell lung cancer. Um, As uh, Dr. Swanson alluded to, uh, chemotherapy is kind of the mainstay of treatment for this disease. And in general, we as medical oncologists tend to think about small cell lung cancer as falling into one of two buckets. Is the cancer confined to one area that's amenable to treatment with radiation? And the hope in that case is to eradicate the cancer by treating with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Or has the cancer spread outside of the thorax? As Dr. Hanna alluded to, this is considered extensive stage disease or metastatic disease. And in that case, the goals of the treatment are different, and so the combinations that we use are different. The goal in that case, rather than eradicating the cancer, uh, is to try to prevent the cancer from growing and spreading to help the patient live longer and to help the patient live with a better quality of life. So as I alluded to, when the goal of the treatment is to cure or eradicate the cancer and it's confined to one part of the body, the combination usually entails two chemotherapy drugs, so chemotherapy is medicine that gets dripped in through an IV, and radiation, uh, which is uh, administered um, uh, through a a radiation machine. Usually that's given once a day, every weekday over a span of of weeks. Um, Alternatively, for patients who have metastatic or extensive stage disease, uh, the combination, as Dr. Swanson mentioned, includes two chemotherapy drugs, the same kind that he was mentioning, platinum and etoposide, uh, with immunotherapy. Um, And uh, the the goal here, uh, again, is to, in addition to directly killing the cancer cells with chemotherapy, we're hoping to stimulate the immune system against the cancer. And in a small group of patients, this can lead to a long-benefit that's sustained, where the immune system uh, is able to keep the, the cancer at bay. When we think about clinical trials, usually these are kind of predicated on improving our understanding of why the treatments that we're using work, which patients they work well for, and which patients they don't work well for. And so, using diagnostic technologies to develop predictors of how patients are going to do is critical. For immune therapy, for example, there are two main ways that we've been using to try to predict benefit in general for cancer. One of those is by looking at the levels of the target of immune therapy in the tumor. So the name of the protein that we look for is called pdl one uh, In general, we tend to see that higher levels of this protein uh, associate with greater benefit from immune therapy. And the other tool that we use is next-generation sequencing to measure the number of mutations in the tumor, and in general, the higher number of mutations, uh, the higher the chance that immune therapy will be helpful. Um, these uh, tools haven't been particularly insightful for predicting benefit in small cell lung cancer. for disease... Immune therapy is approved in combination with chemotherapy, regardless of the PDL1 score and regardless of findings that we would have from the sequencing. Um, and so we need to be on the lookout for markers to guide treatment choices. The unique challenges that we sell on lung cancer is that tumor samples are better in the cut measures that might give us a hint of, of what may be beneficial. That being said, as Dr. Swanson noted, there's increasing recognition in the field of these subtypes of small cell lung cancer. And this understanding um, comes from a combination of information that we've learned from sequencing DNA, sequencing RNA, and looking at protein levels in terms to define these subgroups. So far, uh, are many new treatments that have been proposed for some of these but at this time, no treatments have been approved based on its emerging understanding of small cell lung cancer. The only way that we'll really be able to know if this understanding is accurate and whether it can lead to improvements in patient care is by doing clinical assessing how predictive these markers are testing new drugs to see if they work in the tumors that we would expect them to work in. Um, Next, I'm gonna speak a bit about uh, you know, the healthcare team about the most current treatment choices for small cell lung cancer and quality of life issues. So one point that I, I think is very important is that in general, small cell lung cancer is a very difficult diagnosis that has an unpredictable course. As Dr. Hanna noted, These tumors can grow very quickly and can cause a lot of symptoms very quickly. Some patients can have significant benefit from treatment. So, for example, we start chemotherapy. The chemo works very well in shrinking the tumor rapidly, and patients can feel much better very quickly. But other patients might experience less benefit and can have a, a much worse clinical course. Because of how uh, unpredictable the treatment can be for this kind of cancer, communicating your goals in your treatment is very important to help make sure that the medical care you receive is aligned to your wishes. So just as I mentioned at the beginning uh, uh, of of my um, talk here, the the goal of the treatment for the cancer needs to be stated ahead of time. Is it limited stage where the goal is cure? Is it extensive stage disease where the goal is to help preserve quality of life and long life uh, with, with treatment? And uh, just as the doctor needs to communicate that to the patient, the patient should be and the family be thoughtful about uh, what their goals are with treatment. Chemotherapy side effects uh, can include a variety of things uh, to, to be mindful of. So chemo can cause weakness, fatigue, reduced appetite and nausea. It can also uh, cause susceptibility to infection that sometimes requires hospitalization to manage. And then other things like numbness and tingling in the fingertips and toes, Those are kind of similar to the chemotherapy drugs that are used. Immunotherapy can cause a very wide variety of side effects and are very uh, unpredictable. Um, and these result from stimulation of the immune system against organs. We don't have any tools right now that can tell us which Side effects are most likely to occur when a patient gets immune therapy. So being open and communicative about the symptoms that you or your loved one are having as you're undergoing treatment is extremely important and can be uh, life-saving for patients who are receiving immunotherapy. Finally, with regard to guidelines for preparing for telehealth or telemedicine appointments, there's actually a, a helpful website from uh, the government. Department of Health and Human Services website that uh, I'll see if we can uh, provide. Um, But as a general rule, uh, as you might prepare for any appointments, it's important to write down any important questions as they come up so that you can remember them. For treatments like chemotherapy and immune therapy, recording concerning symptoms and trying to keep track of when they happen, what provokes or improves them be very helpful for how the doctor uh, responds and, and uh, what management is recommended. Um, in particular, it can be helpful to keep track of whether new symptoms have started after a new treatment began. Did they get better over time from the new treatment or are they worsening? These are pieces of information that we often use to figure out what's going on. For telehealth visits, it, it would help to keep in mind who else you might like to have on the call a family member or a friend who's helping out with your care, just to make sure that all the information gets captured uh, and that all the important questions are, are addressed. If you're able to make sure that you can log in to the platform that's being used for telehealth in advance of the visit, sometimes that can cut out delays during the appointment. There are sometimes connection issues even with people who are very experienced with these platforms, but at least making sure that you know how to log in can cut out some wait time. And then finally, uh, one kind of subtle point, if, if there's an area of concern, a rash or something like that, that you might want to show the doctor, it can sometimes be challenging to address in a telehealth visit. So if you're able to set up the camera so that you can able to show the doctor, sometimes that can also be beneficial. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hannock. That was just a wonderful, superb presentation. I'm very comprehensive, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is, um, is Nicole Centrica, and Ms. Zentrica is Senior Support Services Manager for Longevity Foundation, and they are our partner organization on today's program. And um, Ms. Centrica will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services and the Lung Cancer Helpline as well as their website as well. Um, and it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Centrica.
5: Thank you so much. Longevity provides um, information, <clears throat> excuse me, and resources to help patients be more active participants in their healthcare decisions. We also provide support and community to all affected by lung cancer. Uh, and we offer these wonderful resources and grateful because of our generous donors who support us and allow us to offer these resources free to the lung cancer community. Um, we have several resources but I'm just going to hit on a few of them. We are national so all of our resources are national for anyone impacted by lung cancer. Um, first of all first of all we have our Lifeline support program. And through our Lifeline program, we offer personalized one-on-one support by matching patients and caregivers to mentors who have similar experiences. Uh, We also provide supporters and advocates the opportunity to participate on our social media platforms uh, to connect with each other, raise awareness about lung cancer, uh, the importance of funding lung cancer research, and changing how people learn about, treat, and live with a disease. And they can do this through our online message boards as well as our private Facebook groups. And um, as Carolyn, uh, Dr. Messner just uh, mentioned, we also partner with Cancer Care for our lung cancer helpline. And um, they answer questions, it's toll free, personalized support for patients and caregivers at any time along the lung cancer journey, and the oncology social workers are available to help you manage your emotional, financial, and support challenges. And that direct number is 844-360-5864. And finally, we also have our website, uh, robust website, it's uh, longevity.org, L U N G E V I T Y.org, where we have a survivor resource center as well as a caregiver resource center. And it helps bridge the practical and emotional gaps in lung cancer survivorship while offering a vast network of support for survivors and their loved ones. Um, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out if you're a lung cancer patient or caregiver in need of support. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for having us today and the opportunity to speak.
1: Oh, thank you so much um, for being on this call and for being a partner on this group and just wonderful resources from the Longevity Foundation. For those of you not familiar with it, it's a great go-to organization. In addition to your healthcare team, of course, but it's a great, it has really very credible and up-to-date information for you to access, so Um, thank you. And now, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. We are a national organization, and we provide services throughout the United States, um, and also through our, we have a Hopeline number, and we also have a website um, that you can visit as well. Um, so what are the services? Many people call our HOPE line, our 800 number, and well, those are answered by our, one of our 45 oncology social workers that we have on staff. Usually a person asks a question, and then they go over with them all the services we offer. So what are those services? You offer support, online support groups. We cover all cancers, so we cover small cell lung cancer, but every other type of cancer, so every cancer we cover in all ages. Um, We also um, provide case management. If we don't have the resource, we'll refer you for help with what it is that you need help with, and be sure you get that help. Um, We'll stay with you until we get the help for you. Um, We also offer workshops like this, and we also have a number of publications. Um, So we have a number of different programs that you can access um, from Our our cancer care website Um, so that's actually uh, just a wonderful resource and now we have time for questions and I'm going to ask our um, Christina to explain to you how to cure for questions we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible Christina and we're going to have all of our speakers brought on board as well
0: (laughs) and if you would like to ask a question please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. A voice prompt on the phone line will indicate when your line is open. At that point, please state your first name and last initial before posing your question. If your question has been answered, press star 2 to remove yourself from the queue. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question.
1: And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so that question for Dr. Hannah. How safe is the Accelerated Approval Program? Does it still conduct the regular amount of studies research?
2: Oh, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that question. So um, the uh, FDA uh, really does uh, look at not only the potential effectiveness of all drugs that it's approved, but but also the safety of those drugs. And this is an ongoing process. So um, a lot of safety information is gathered. This is safety information that first comes from uh, animal studies. It comes from early human clinical trials, what we call phase one studies. It comes from phase two studies that look specifically at the drug in in a specific disease population and and then evaluates the effectiveness. But it also looks at the safety of the drug conducted on other clinical trials in which it was evaluated, other diseases in which it's been uh, used against as well. And then there's an ongoing monitoring of the safety of the patients who participated in that particular trial all other clinical trials, and then continuing to gather information as the drug is used in in general practice. So um, the uh, the oversight is pretty stringent. The criteria is pretty narrow, and, and I would say the the uh, safety of the public, by and large, is of uh, the, the the highest priority of the FDA. With something like small cell lung cancer, the disease is, of course, uh, certainly a a quite difficult disease to treat in which you have a lot of potential difficulties, including death from the cancer. So when you look at the safety of a cancer drug in that circumstance, the criteria may be a little bit different, uh, certainly is different than if you're looking at, say, a blood pressure medicine or, you know, some other medicine as well in which, you know, you certainly would never accept a drug uh, treating blood pressure that caused a third of your patients to have a very low white blood cell count. But in somebody with advanced cancer in which uh, their lives may be measured in a matter of months uh, or years, uh, then, then the definition of what's considered safe can, can change. But it's really in alignment with the criteria for what safety is, even under uh, large clinical trials.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hanna. And a question for Dr. Swanson. Is a pathologist always assigned to me?
4: Uh, For any tissue that is taken out of a patient, there is a pathologist assigned. So, anytime uh, a biopsy is reviewed or a molecular test is done, a pathologist is assigned to you. Now, they're often at academic centers and at other hospitals. There may be a team of pathologists, so it may be uh, more than one pathologist who looks at subsequent biopsies, but for a given sample, yes, you are assigned a pathologist.
1: And this is a similar question, but slightly different. um, Can I speak to the pathologist when I visit my oncologist for Dr. Swanson?
2: I would say yes. That
4: would need to be prearranged usually, but I... That is possible and that would just, you would need to ask your oncologist ahead of time. But um, there is a movement in pathology to connect pathologists to patients um, that's occurring at our national organizations. And so what I, would, I would encourage you to do that, yes.
1: Excellent. And a question for Dr. Haneck, when is combination therapy used?
3: Uh, so combination therapy, I would say, is used for the majority of patients with small cell lung cancer. But the question is, which combination and for which scenario for for small cell lung cancer? So uh, chemotherapy is used for pretty much all patients who are getting treated with small cell lung cancer. For patients who have limited stage, the chemotherapy usually gets combined with radiation therapy. For patients with metastatic or extensive stage small cell, the chemo tends to be combined with immunotherapy these days.
1: Thank you. And um, for Dr. Hannah what is what is part of diagnostic testing? What procedures are included?
2: Well, again, the, for to diagnose somebody with small cell lung cancer requires tissue. And uh, usually that is done by bronchoscopy or by CT guidance. And it's nice to get a core biopsy because oftentimes the sample has a lot of dead cells and and uh, sometimes finding the viable cells can be difficult. If a fine needle aspirate is done, which is sometimes the case, we, we try to get multiple fine needle aspirates. Occasionally, somebody will have fluid build up around the lung that is cancerous as a result of the cancer being along the lining of the lung. In that case, a diagnostic procedure could be what's called a thoracentesis, which is putting a, a small needle into the space between the lining of the lung and the lung. It goes between the ribs and in the back. And you pull fluid off, and you can and sometimes find the malignant cells in, in that way. But it always requires a biopsy. And uh, oftentimes, there are just a few cells that are found. So the more biopsy samples that you can obtain, the more we can help our pathologist.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and um, so, oh, Dr. Hennick, um how can I decrease side effects of treatment?
3: It's a very good question. I would say it really depends on which treatment and side effects are of concern. Um I, I think probably it's the the most important thing is to discuss with your oncologist which side effects you're most concerned about. For example, patients who have autoimmune disease are known to be at increased risk of side effects from immune therapy to the point where Many times, immune therapy is not recommended, uh, depending, uh, again, on the severity of the autoimmune disease, Um, and so it's very important for you to communicate with your doctor exactly what your medical conditions are, which side effects are of greatest concern to you, and this way, to the extent possible, the treatment can be tailored to limit the side effects, Sometimes, so for example, with limited stage lung cancer, limited stage small cell lung cancer, where the goal is to eradicate the cancer, the treatment can be very aggressive and can have a lot of side effects. And it's kind of accepted that the uh, risk of tr- the, the benefit of the treatment and, and the goal of trying to eradicate the cancer may outweigh the risk of some of those side effects. On the other hand, when there's extensive stage lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, and the goal is to uh, balance longevity of life with quality of life, the side effects from the treatment uh, may be of of greater concern. And so uh, sometimes the oncologist will think to reduce the dose or to tailor the therapy uh, accordingly.
1: Excellent, thank you. and um although we have many more questions in queue, i we're at almost at start time uh, a close time, and I just wanted to ask our speakers to each provide a takeaway from today's program, and the order that you present so sorry, Dr. Hannah, then Dr. Swanson, Dr. Hannock, and then Ms santrica If you would just like to comment on um just a takeaway that you'd like the participants to take with them from today's program, Dr. Hannah.
0: Well,
2: I I guess my takeaway would be more about the FDA approval process. And and that is that uh, small cell lung cancer is uh, a cancer in which we are really searching for newer and better and more effective therapies. And a process by which we can accelerate those discoveries, reduce barriers. And get safe and effective treatments to patients sooner is one that I think has worked well in many circumstances in in oncology. And I I remain hopeful and optimistic that in the upcoming years, this process and and generally the research that's put into small cell lung cancer is is going to reap great rewards for our patients.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Hanna. And Dr. Swanson?
2: Yeah, my takeaway
4: would be, although one of the cornerstones of diagnosis is the pathologic assessment, I would say the future in pathology is really the molecular testing, the next generation sequencing where we look at large amounts of DNA and RNA. And as I had alluded to, there are different groups of uh, types of small cell cancer when we look at all patients with small cell cancer, and I think that's going to be the Biggest areas of growth in terms of research, in terms of clinical trials. Um, as we understand the biology, as we understand what drives these cancers, I'm hopeful that um, that will lead to clinical trials that will show benefit um, based yeah, on you. the subgroup analysis.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, um, um, and Dr. Hennick?
3: So I, I would echo the sentiments, the sentiments of, of Dr. Hanna and Dr. Swanson. And in, in addition, I, w- I would just say that, uh, especially in thinking about um, actually uh, receiving the treatment and, and going through treatment and communicating with with your doctors, um, uh, really trying to uh, kind of reflect on on your goals with with treatment is important to help make sure that the treatment your doctor provides is is aligned appropriately. Uh, I I echo the sentiments of of hope and optimism around uh, kind of reclassifying some of these uh, small cell cancers based on the new diagnostic tools that are being developed. And I think really the only way that we'll be able to learn more about this disease and about which treatments are are best is uh, to participate in in clinical trials when they're available. Um, And hopefully it will lead to benefit for the patients who are uh, enrolling in these trials directly, uh, and and certainly this will be the the path to benefit for
5: the
1: field. Excellent. Thank you. Um, And Ms. Sancheca?
5: I just want to let everyone know that you're not alone. Um, Please reach out to Longevity Foundation or Cancer Care. Um, We're here for a network of support and community.
1: Thank you. I want to just thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal, and I want to thank our participants for really asking such very thoughtful and um, important questions. Um, and although we have many more questions in queue, I do want to comment about, about that part of it. So but I do want to thank our speakers and, and all of you as participants as well um, for making this such a special program. Um, so in terms of um, the, those of you who either asked a question have a question that you are still in queue wanting to ask, or are thinking of a question? We'd like you to take all of your questions back to your healthcare team. For those who have asked a question, see this as a role play, to going back to your treating team and asking them the question with the information you've learned from today's program. But remember, your healthcare team—they have all the um, all of your medical records. They know the most about you, and they can assist you in in further answering the questions that you have. So I hope that this has been an opportunity for you to create questions that you want and ask your questions over and over again until you get the answers that you need. Um, Also, um, I think I just want to echo what Ms. Sentryka said, that we don't want any of you to feel that you're alone in coping with um, uh, small cell lung cancer. I want you to know that you're part of a community of support. And with any type of cancer, and that Longevity Foundation is here for you, Cancer Care is here for you. We will be sending you all a survey monkey evaluation, and we'll include all the resources that were mentioned, the websites, the telephone numbers. Um, We want you to go to credible websites for your information. Don't just Google small cell lung cancer, but be sure you're going to the most reputable sites. And what do I mean by that? I mean sites that are well-respected in the lung cancer community, or in the cancer community, sites that are checked quite regularly by expert speakers like we have on today's program, so the information is the most up-to-date. Because treatments keep changing and things change all the time, it's really important to go to sites that really work on keeping their information up-to-date. That's very important. Um, So, um, And again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to thank you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.